You are all weirdos. Weird science is the revolution. Weird science is the revolution. Welcome, all you weirdos, for Cohen refugees and everyone who just sold all your Dogecoin to buy into Mysterium Futures. Welcome to Weird Dose of X number 69, dudes! Where we are the mutant member of your Weird Science Podcast family. I'm your host, Jason, broadcasting from the Wrong Turn Studio, high atop stately Weird Science Tower, and here with me live from the waiting room of Leon Nunez's tattoo parlor is my man, Ruben. Hey, Ruben, how the heck are you today? You get around, man. Yeah, yeah, I'm in a lot of different places. I'm great. Recording I'm really on location. Great. Great. I'm got really excited to talk about two of these books. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting week. We got some some big stuff going on. We will be talking about Children of the Vault, number three of four. Astonishing Iceman, number three of five, and Invincible Iron Man, number 11 of however long Marvel decides to let Jerry Duggan write it. Uh, first, we're going to start with some, some more news. It's, you know, an uh, X season where we get lots of news every week, usually right after we're done broadcasting and recording. Uh, so my predictions for how Marvel would end the Krakoan era continue to be proven ever more correct each additional day. I'm not even talking about the contents of the books, just like what books are going to be published. I had originally thought that starting in January, we might be only getting both Ox and Rotpox, that is, you know, Fall of the House of X, Rise of the Powers of X, kind of like mirroring the beginning of the era. You know, I'm a math guy. I like symmetry. I like the, I, I like that kind of neat idea, but Marvel keeps adding more books for you to buy. Uh, before this week, we already knew Resurrection of Magneto would be a four-issue mini, and Wolverine will be continuing into the new year, all the way to issue 50, with a Sabretooth War arc. And I thought, okay, yeah, sure I was wrong, but now that's it. Nope. This week, Marvel added two more miniseries, both starting in January. The first one is just called Cable, written by Fabian Nisaiza, with art by Scott Eaton. Uh, it'll be four issues featuring, I think, two Cables, the old guy and the not-so-old guy. That sound like fun? That sounds cool to me. Very cool. I'm getting more into this idea of Cable having clones similar to King. I shouldn't say clones, but, you know, different. Right. Timeline, wonkiness, multiple yeah. versions. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, there's still some it. things hanging out there for Cable to clean up, so might as well. Yeah. Now, the other newly announced miniseries is called Dead X-Men, written by Steve Fox with art by Vincenzo Caruto. That's the artist on Astonishing Iceman, which we're going to rave about in a little bit. Uh, Steve Fox is the writer on the current Fall of X mini, Dark X-Men. That's the one featuring, featuring Matty Pryor, so maybe Dead X-Men is some kind of sequel to that? But then the solicit for it says that Dead X-Men, quote, spins out of Rise of the Powers of X, which is the series that's supposed to be set 10 years in the future. So who even knows? If there's any 10 years in the future stuff going on, I would have thought that would happen in the Cable book, but I'm not sure what this is. There's kind of a neat cover going around for this, which shows certain dead characters rising from the grave. And I'm not sure I can even identify all those characters, and it's probably spoilers to mention them now, but that cover's out there if you want to look at it. So what do you what do you think of this Steve Fox miniseries? I, it's a writer I'm not familiar with, but do you know what he's written before? I think I've read a, occasional Marvel things by him, but I don't really have a handle on him outside of those couple of uh, dark X-Men books we, we've gotten, which have not really been my favorite so far. That's the one that had like too many characters, and it's hard to keep up with why we should care about each one. Yeah, I've liked that a little bit more than you, so I'm cautiously optimistic, but uh, it's a weird title. We'll, we'll certainly check it out. Uh, so in addition, I've been poking around the Previews World website. I, I mentioned Previews World a lot. 
I don't know if folks know what that is. It's it's uh, a website put out there by Diamond Distribution that basically lists all the stuff that comic shops can order. So all the comics, all the trades, all the omnibuses, all the like little Funko Pops and merchandise. So it's often like the first place you can see what's really going to come out. That's why I like to poke around there. And I looking there now, the January solicits have been released. And there's at least two of our ongoing series, uh, Jerry Duggan's X-Men and Ben Purge's X-Force. I thought they were going to end in December. They don't. They have January solicits out there. Uh, so they're continuing probably even beyond January because the solicit for January's X-Force number 48 says it's the start of a new arc. So I don't know when that's going to end, but it's still going. Also, the solicit for January's Invincible Iron Man 14, completely X-related. So that book will continue to be essentially a fall of X book, even without the uh, the trade dress on the cover. The Krakoan era is not going gentle into that good night. So here I was worrying, Ruben, that we might not have enough books to fill up the podcast at the beginning of next year. Not going to be a problem. So you ready to read all that stuff? Yeah, I always like reading all this stuff. Have some good hot takes here on the mic? Yeah, yeah. As long as it's interesting, that's the thing. We'll see, right? Titles don't really tell me anything. It's usually who are the writers. and. One of them I'm okay with. We'll see. So uh, one of the nice things about this era of the X-Books is there's always a lot of stuff being published. So even if there are certain titles that we'd like to skip, there's there's always something else to talk about. I'll say at least they haven't announced a bunch of writers that give me pause, right? Yeah, there are certain aspects of this era that seem to have been kind of dropped and aren't coming back anytime soon, and, and we're probably okay with that. And they haven't said anything about Otherworld, so that's good. Well, I mean, that's still happening in Realm of X, more or less. So we'll, we'll worry about that next week. This week, uh, we're going to start off big, and I'm not even being ironic here. This is the big book of the week. It is Children of the Vault, number three of four, the penultimate issue, War on Tomorrow, written by Dennis Camp, art by Luca Maresca, colors by Carlos Lopez, letters by Corey Pettit, designed by Tom Muller and Jay Bowen. So in this issue... You warm my heart by saying this is the big book. <laughs> it, it is. I've been resisting. Uh, in this issue, Dennis Camp tries real, real hard to convince me that this story is taking place in the same universe as the rest of the Fall of X. I, I'm not yet it's convinced. Still, yeah. This would be such a, like, can you imagine if these events were referenced in the other Fall of X books and then this issue hit? This would that be like would be a huge. big deal, right? right? If you believe that this was actually what was going on post gala this would be a huge issue but uh, yeah, i feel like he was done dirty by in, the in, other in writers x-men and an x-force and, and everything else yeah this should be huge news i mean yeah. whatever universe or timeline this book is happening in i mean it is turning out to be one hell of a story yeah it's, it's really good stuff and if you're not reading children of the vault if you skip the first you know one or two issues check it out it's, it's really good so last time out cable stole some very important information out of the mind of one of the children Martillo. Cable and Bishop now know everything they need to know about the layout of the city and also about the children's plan, which is to spread this semantic virus called the message. Now, right now, the message, which passes from person to person through language, it just makes people kind of have warm, fuzzy feelings about the children and repeat the vapid slogan, become the future. Now, eventually, through means I don't think have been made clear, this virus is going to kill off like 99% of humanity, leaving the planet mostly empty for the post-human children of the vault to inherit. 
Do, now, do we know how this message is supposed to turn and become deadly? Or is that still a secret? Yeah, it's still sort of a secret. I thought the idea, and I feel like we're never going to see it. Maybe he decided he's just not going to answer that. But I thought it was something like a certain percentage, 1% of the population would join up with the children and the rest of the people would be left behind and get killed off. Some small percentage is going to survive, but I don't think we know the, oh, it's like that, that, and then a miracle happens kind of step. We don't know exactly where they get from point A to point B, but something bad's going to happen. So this issue is about Bishop and Cable pulling a pretty neat trick on the children with some possibly very major happenings along the way. So we start off uh, with Bishop aiming a comically huge gun at the city. Uh, at De- I don't know if it's Dennis Camp or, or artist Maresca, but they love having just Cable with these comically huge guns. Uh, and it, I like it every time because it's not it's not like the the kind of tired pouch jokes about the 90s. It's just, let's give Cable ever larger guns, and it's great yes. stuff. And you get Bishop trying to keep up, so he's doing the same thing, which also makes me laugh. The, the rivalrous kind of buddy <laughs> movie where they don't really get along, it's, it's, it's good stuff. It's this weird sitcom thing happening in the background of a very serious book. Now, this gun is approximately as large as my house. Uh, displays a lot of Cable's futuristic big gun aesthetic with a bit of Krakoan nature tech mixed in. Now, do you recognize this particular gun? We, we have seen it before. No. It, I only learned this by looking in the comments on that great House to Astonish website that goes through all the books. There was a commentator who did there. I forget what the person's name was. But this gun appeared in X-Men number 15, the, the Jerry Duggan one. That was a Children of the Vault issue. Now, in that story, Forge built this giant gun to point at the exit to the vault, this one was going to automatically fire a baby black hole in there if the vault door ever opened. Started to ring a bell? Yeah, okay. Yep. Now, it did turn out that whole scene was part of the simulation, didn't really happen. That was when the whole vault was inside the Krakoan bubble, right? But I guess the gun itself was real because, you know, hell, here it is. Uh, one last moment from X-Men 15, I have to mention, uh, Cyclops, simulated Cyclops, says, quote, that's a big gun. If Cable sees it, he's going to want it. <laughs> now he has it. That's, again, Dennis Camp has read these books. He That's knows awesome. how I to like make that. these cool connections. You don't need to know that to enjoy the book. No, but that once makes me I look back, it, yeah. it was so good. Good stuff. Yeah. So Cable has this big old gun pointed once again at the children, now out of the vault and in their floating city. I'm not sure how Bishop could have transported this here. Maybe yeah. it packs away small, expands when you <laughs> add water. Yeah. Was this, I, I guess, yeah, this was the thing that Bishop got out of that secret cable weapon storage place last issue, right? Must have been. So the children defend their city against these micro singularities by deploying their wild post human powers. Uh, you know, they just got to say some weird, crazy name, some weird, crazy art, and don't explain it. But in, in a way that works, kind of a Grant Morrison, here's just some wild ideas I'm just giving away for free. They pretty quickly. And it does some damage. It, yeah, the- a little bit. You know, they sort of stop it, but they say some people die here and there, and it's, you know, at least drawing their attention. It's not completely ignored. For sure. So Bishop and Cable try to sneak into the city while the children are distracted, uh, but they're stopped real quick. But they haven't really failed, have they? It, it looked like, oh, their big gambit, not not capital G gambit, lowercase g gambit, their big gambit failed, and now they're done, but, but something else happened. <laughs> Who enters the fight, apparently, I don't know, on the side of the mutants, but at least against the children? Who who, who joins in? Oh, my wildest fantasy. 
<laughs> That's a whole other podcast, but I was so pleased. Yeah, the uh, the Orcus goons Orcus is here. show up. Yep. Yeah, they send these swarms of sentinels to attack the city, including the new Stark Sentinels and those more traditional looking Mark IVs, the ones that look like they have a like a knit cap on their heads. You know those purple and blue ones. I mean, we'll see in a moment that Orcus is also blasting the city with an energy weapon from the sun. Yep. Now, what the hell is going on here? We get an explanation <laughs> in a flashback three hours earlier. And I don't know that the timeline of this book in a couple places really makes sense, but may- maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Cable, before this battle, went and secretly recruited Orcus. Now, back in issue number one of the series, we were shown in one teeny tiny panel, Orcus was aware of and monitoring the children, but still considered finishing off the mutants, you know, their high priority. So Cable goes back and psychically inserts a little something into the mind of an Orcus scientist. A hint about the existence of the message, plus just a touch of paranoia. I really enjoy the irony of Cable messing with someone's mind to spread the news about how the children are messing with everyone's mind. That's that's good stuff. And again, it's not hit too hard, but if you think about it, oh, that's kind of funny. Yes. This scientist confirms the existence of the message, just like Cable did at the end of issue number one, and Orcus immediately changes priorities all-out war on the children. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. They've Another Morrison-type idea is basically they realize this is a problem, and then apparently they've got a fail-safe for this kind of thing, which I guess would make sense, because they'd be afraid the mutants could do something like this. Mm-hmm. But the... They've seen I guess the system, system gets shut down. Right. Yeah, the system gets shut down, and then they've got these brains and vats that kind of are like AI, just analyzing what you know. What should we do? And they kind of take over Orcus and decide, you know, hey, right? New they're, priority they're target. that their own minds might be suspect, so they have to turn over the decision making to what they think are clean, shielded decision makers. Kind of, kind of wacky. Super wacky, but I liked it. I thought it was neat. And where is this scientist based out of? You uh, see where he know. is? No. He's at Orcus's new space-based headquarters called the Reforge, as oh, okay. a rebuilt version of the Orcus Forge destroyed way the hell back in House of X number four. Yeah. This version, the Reforge, sits right on the surface of the sun, speaking of wacky ideas, and it looks like it has its own mother mold. Yeah. That'd be a, a, a big deal I mean, for the mutants if they didn't already have enough on their plates. The mother mold is back. Yeah. And this is the source of that energy weapon blasting down at the city in that earlier scene. Just shooting sun rays. So just in a couple pages here, just big idea after big idea after big idea that Dennis Camp is, is not holding back. He's got four issues to work with, and it, there's no decompression going on. Back to the battle, already in progress. And it is a, a pretty cool battle scene with the Sentinels and the children, uh, all that stuff going on. The most interesting bit to me, though, is what Serafina points out. Humans should not be fighting back. The message should have made them all, you know, docile by now. She doesn't know that Cable did his little sneaky thing and, and directed that information to Orcus. Remember that internal debate among the children about how to go about conquering Earth? Capitan wanted to destroy Earth by just sheer force. Serafina wanted to be more subtle and use this kind of idea type strategy. Yeah. She was being benevolent. I would not say benevolent. I think she was being more people subtle. Survive. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> well, Capitan now gets to play the I told you so card because that plan's not working so well. Uh, cut to another sitcom scene where Cable and Bishop argue about what the best future tech rifle is. It's the, is it the Omega-1 pulse rifle or the P8320 point plasma cannon? Yeah. Did these, have these guns ever been mentioned before? 
I don't think it matters. It's just yeah. something for them to argue over. I'm not close enough to this to know, like, is this their favorite guns? But the names made me laugh and the whole idea about them arguing about who's got the better gun was funny on its own. Big silly guns drawn drawn really well. I mean, this this could have been a, you know, a Rob Liefeld kind of design. It, it, it yeah. looks like it should for these two characters. It's fun to see them continue to not really get along, even though as they know they have to work together to save the world. And that's one thing I liked about this is they don't seem to ever become buddies through this. Oh, no. I think they're still sort of enemies, but they've got a common you know, adversary. So they, ha- they know that this is a higher priority. They'll go back to fighting again, I yep. expect, when it's all over. Which I actually kind of prefer because sometimes there's those tropes of, you know, oh, we were enemies, but we realized we had more in common than we, you know, expected. So now we're buddies. I, I'm happy to see these guys remain, you know, mistrusting and they, they spent sort of so long trying to murder each other to death. Yeah. yeah there's going to be some, some obstacles to overcome here. Yeah. So they do split up to go after separate objectives, and we'll see what those are in a bit. The children don't just sit there and, and take this orc attack. Orcus attack, they respond. One thing they do have, oh, excuse me, one thing they do is to have Madre, who is the child in charge of their crash, release a new incarnation of a new child. Well, new to us, old to them. They, this was like a model of child who they thought was obsolete. Uh, his name is Muerte 13, a bald guy who in a previous incarnation, we're told, had been so violent that he did a great deal of damage to the city itself. He seems like the children's version of Oranos, right? Yeah, exactly. He's this hyper-destructive character, set him loose only in like, desperate circumstances. Yeah. Muerte then disappears from the issue. I, mean, I, I guess we'll see him in issue number four. Yeah. I'm going to say maybe he'll be attacking the Reforge directly. Do you think that's where we're going to see him, or is he going to be fighting Bishop and Cape? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm curious to see what the character's line is, who this character is. Yeah, we, we see his, his, his face... They mentioned he did something with antimatter, but he's still kind of a mystery. I expect he'll be the, the a big card to play next issue. Now, Madre has appeared once before. Uh, uh, she, it, it looks like a male character, but the wikis all say she. I don't know. Uh, Madre has appeared once before in issue number 19 of the Hickman X-Men volume. That was the one with Laura, Darwin, and Sink inside the vault. They went and, and fought Madre. Mm-hmm. Now, Serafina also makes a choice here. She switches to what we're told is oversight mode, another big idea, to suck in more information and to reassess what's really going on. She sees the battle. She sees Muerte being released. She sees that the children are clearly the superior force here and are obviously going to win. But then she sees something else. Yeah. This is, this is the, this was crazy. Yeah. This makes you take notice of this issue. You're like, oh, wait, this is actually somebody gave Dennis Camp authority to write it. You know, either either he gave authority or he's messing with us and I'm going to curse his name after next issue. Because what she sees yeah. is a vast intelligence, one outside of and larger than this current conflict, manipulating, controlling absolutely everything. And before she passes out from the enormity of it all, she says one word. Yeah, she says What dominion. is the word she says? Dominion. Dominion. <laughs> oh, I, that made me go, wow. I think yeah. I actually literally said wow when I read that because- <laughs> I did not see that coming. I mean, I would have expected I, we expected Dominions to come back. Yes, right. I thought probably in Immortal, yes, or maybe you would Rise think that Karen Gillan would continue it. Yeah, but this, have it show up in what seemed like the side book. If it really is continuing that thread, that'll be awesome. And I, I hope we're not just being played with. So uh, the book pauses now to give us a scene of how the message is playing out on Earth, and this is where the timeline 
doesn't seem to fit because this scene clearly starts after Orcus knows about the message, but it seems to take like days and weeks to happen, but it's also during the battle. So I'm a little confused. A little confused. Yeah. So uh, Orcus tries to fight back in this semantic war against the message. They make a very clumsy kitty cartoon starring Nimrod. Which yeah, is, I is fun about of, this. <laughs> but I would have thought Orcus would be better at this. They have a whole propaganda division. I forget who's in charge of that pedal. Yes, but yes, it, they, they should do better. I know they they were caught unaware. They have to you know turn and aim at a different target. Yeah, but I did laugh when we find out that Orcus can't mean that. That was <laughs> that was funny. And the, the whole scene can be read as a, a commentary on boy, pick what you want it to be a commentary on, like the internet, social yeah. media. Mass media, intergenerational, lack of understanding, uh, really all the ways that good, healthy, positive human impulses can wind up being turned to evil ends. And again, I'll just direct listeners' attention to the news these days, let you choose which comparison you want to draw. There's a lot of choices. Uh, but I think I'd like that as the social commentary to be not so, not so pointed, not so on the nose, just kind of reminds you of, you know, things going on in the human condition that are kind of weird. You don't always think about. So it's a good little scene. Makes a point. This is the right way to do it. Yeah, it's not over the head. It's just interesting, right? You've got these two groups that are trying to control a message to direct the populace to their agenda, right? And meanwhile, you've got real people having interpersonal conflict as a result of it. Yeah, normal people who are trying to do the right thing, but depending on which which meme, which idea, kind of burrows deeper in their head. They kind of just go off in one direction or another. Yeah. And I, again, it, it makes like you think it. about some things. Good I've stuff. certainly had these issues, right? You could think of political stuff where you're sitting there grilling your parents and things like that about their choices and how they must be awful people for supporting one candidate or the other. And then mm-hmm. you take a step back and realize, like, why are you so adversarial to, like, your close how did I get people. in the position I'm defending tooth and nail now? How exactly yeah. did I reason my way here or did I just kind of fall into it? Yeah, no, I thought this was a cool. This was cool. It was funny. I, I like the become the future thing, right? Because once you know that's their message, you see people talking and they just kind of yeah, bubble it out, right? Like, like a, it's their own original idea. Like a heavy metal band t-shirt that just says become yeah. the future. Yeah. Kind of funny. I like the father is like talking to his daughter who's all sad. You know, you can always become the future, don't you? <laughs> okay, enough metaphor and social commentary. Back to the action. Uh, so we, remember how Bishop and Cable split up. Now we see where each of them went. Bishop headed off to the crash. That's the place in the city where Madre watches over the next generation of children, decides he'll be born next. No dialogue at all here. I think Bishop killed a bunch of dudes. It's, yes. At least there's a bunch of dudes in a hallway. We didn't see the hallway fight, but that's implied. Yeah. And now we just see Bishop and Madre square off to fight. Now, is Bishop here to destroy the crash? Is that the implication? Yeah, seems like it. That'd be quite the play. We, we get a, a data page with a bishop talking about how, you know, to save the world, to save billions of people, he's willing to do some pretty awful things. And, you know, attacking, yes. you know, a room full of unborn babies, it's, ew, it's, it's striking. Be quite the I mean, play. if you, if you think back to like Messiah War, the number of people he's killed, <laughs> this is like 0.05% or something, <laughs> right? Like on the he list, is, yeah. He has wiped out many more people just trying to take out um, hope. So this is this ain't nothing. Oh well, we leave him for now. We don't see what happens again. That's another thing to play out in the last issue. Uh, Serafina, we saw pass out after the shock of learning that whole Dominion thing. She wakes up and runs to warn 
city about what she's learned. When I say city here, I mean the AI at the heart of the city. He's the, he or she or it is the intelligence responsible for like steering the whole evolution of the children, probably a whole bunch of other stuff. It's, It's a big old head at the middle of the city, right? Yep. So when Serafina arrives to deliver the warning, I don't know why there's not a radio, but more dramatic this way. (laughs) She finds Cable there. And Cable, of course, has a gun, a really big gun, pointed right at, you know, City, the the big old head. So between the two of them, Bishop and Cable have attacked the city at two really vulnerable points. And so it's also kind of funny here as Serafina rushes in, she's talking about this dominion, kind of this power behind everything. Yeah. And Cable thinks that he's ref- that she's referring to him. Yes. Yeah, when I first read this, I was like, are they saying that Cable is the Dominion? <laughs> Which would be super wild, right? Like there's no way you can reveal that Cable's like the the hands. No, I mean, again, he's beyond time and space, so it's it's yeah. not the craziest thing ever, but I don't think that's what they're saying. No, I don't think so either. And I I think that she she says basically um the humans are not alone. They're not even in control. You know, it wears them like a glove, a mind beyond comprehension, forces their every move. And then Cable's like, I'm <laughs> yeah, flattered. He, he takes his compliment. Yeah. Too much credit. I like the idea of Cable being like, yeah, I guess I am a mind beyond comprehension. Uh, I wanted to put it that way, but you know, <laughs> thanks. Yeah. So next time, is is she going to spill the beans about the Dominion? Is Cable yeah. going to find out about that? Yeah. Which would be big, right? Like somebody besides Mother Righteous knowing that this thing exists, that it's right, because behind the curtain. The listeners, if you've forgotten, we learned at the end of the whole Sinister-Sinister deal that Sinister was going to rise to become the Dominion, but he found another Dominion there already who had made the rule that said Sinister can't be a Dominion. So somebody got that spot, and we don't know who yet. So I guess it's that Dominion. I expect. We know there's also another Dominion out there, the Techno one from House and Powers. Yes. I think this is probably the Sinister-related one going on here. It, it seems like a Sinister-related sort of thing to do. Yeah. And it's interesting. We were talking offline, like, are there multiple Dominions? My understanding is yes, if, if we're going by the Hickman yeah, understanding they, they of it. are. I don't know how many are currently messing around on Earth, is my question. I think just the one. But it, it's definitely, it, this to me says it's whoever was puppeting like what was going on in Sins of Sinister is also moving the pieces right now in this Children of the Vault issue. That's what I'm assuming until evidence otherwise. Yeah. So this was a really good issue. Tons yes. going on, great action, also deeper themes, surprising connections to larger continuity. Uh, yeah, I did not expect to see Dominions here, and to see that pop up was a good kind of surprise. Yeah, and it works out as a good as a good thing, right? Because I always assumed when the children are fighting Orcus that you would assume the further evolved of the group would have no problem ultimately defeating them. So it was cool to see Orcus putting up a fight, right? But what they're doing is sort of a lower tech version of what the children already well, have. It's really the battle is right out of, you know, powers of X. It's post humans versus technology. Yeah. Right? So this theme has been there since the very beginning of the era, and we're seeing two of those powers play out in whatever timeline this is. We've seen in various timelines, different sides win. And to see these two sides fighting and to have a Dominion putting its finger on the scales from the outside, that's that's really something. Now, again, I still don't so much believe this is happening in the main universe. <laughs> okay, Orcus is now a big player. I like that. 
Yes. Got the Dominion thing. I like that. But how are the events of this book, the Children of Light taking over, brainwashing the whole world? Orcus yeah. has this new base on the sun, and they're they're fighting uh, the, the children. How are these events not huge news in every other in book? In any other book, yeah. And that's the one thing that will forever make this series a little weaker. This it book sucks, is, is pulling cool. in all the strands from everything, which is fantastic. Yeah. We don't see anything going out from this book into other titles. I, I would really love to see that. Yeah. But again, I had to say that. I'm, I'm not going to let it affect how much I'm enjoying this book. Children of the Vault, Head and Shoulders, the best of the fall of X-Men's. I don't think there's really any competition there. No, it's good. And I was worried about somebody writing a children's story that wouldn't be awesome. And this, to me, has been awesome. It is. It is definitely awesome. The only maybe competition is Uncanny Spider-Man, which I, I liked issue number one, but yeah. Because of delays, we've only seen issue number one. So we can't really. Yeah, hard to say. It. It's not really a full story yet. But I, I had to say, like, I, I got to say, this is definitely the best. But, you know, let's, let's also wait and see how that, how that goes. But, but this is, it's, if, if Uncanny Spider Man is anywhere near as good as Children of the Vault, I'll be a happy guy. Uh, now, uh, I expect going forward that the major architects of the Krakoan era, we don't think they're going to participate in what happens next, right? Hickman's not coming back. Uh, Duggan and Gillen and Ewing probably aren't going to be big writers in the next era. But, you know, it, Tom Brevoort, if, you know, if you're listening, and I know you are, if you're in the market for a new head of X, you could do worse than hand the reins over to Dennis Camp. Yeah, you know? I hope he gets an opportunity to do more books because he's delivering. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely going to go back and read his indie book, which was it 21st Century Men, I think was what it's called. Something like that. I, I'm always just confused with the manga 20th Century Boys. It's called something similar to that, but different. But yeah, I'm going to check out what Dennis Camp has, has written in the past because his, his Children of the Vault book is really good. I'm giving this issue 9 out of 10. Cool. Nice. I'll join you because I liked it as well. I went back and, and checked my ratings of the previous uh, issues. I went from, I think, 7.5 to 8.5 and, and now up to 9. This It's definitely definitely winning me over. Really good stuff. It's cool. I like the. I, th I think the the smart play was focusing on two characters, the Bishop Cable dynamic. It's easy to have like a point of view, and you're not really like lost following you know two very distinct characters because the children. There's so many of them, right? Sometimes it's sort of frustrating. They seem like this big threat, but you don't really know what they're doing, right? Because you they just like oh here's more to yeah. thirteen, like right? Sarah it's like, uh, a real okay. character. Last issue, Martillo was a real character. The rest of them are just kind of like crazy powers with legs yeah yeah we need to be like oh somebody can absorb black holes then okay fine the guy that's got a big face he could do that but i think the you know focusing on cable and bishop you have enough of like inner dynamics that it feels like it's a character driven story and then you have just a weird threat going around in the background which is cool yeah really well done so moving from the sublime to the ridiculous <laughs> Next up is Astonishing Iceman number three of five, making it the anti-penultimate issue, Out Cold Part Three. Written by Steve Orlando, art by Vincenzo Caruto, letters by Travis Lanham, uh, designed by Tom Muller and Jay Bowen. Uh, now, maybe we can get through this issue pretty quickly, uh, and for a reason that our, you know, our, our man Gabe points out over in his written review at the WeirdScienceMarvelComics.com website, where he, he posts all those written reviews. And he mentions that all three issues of this title have had the exact same structure. Orcus attacks some innocent people in order to lure Iceman out. Iceman gets lured out, defeats the baddie of the week, 
and then returns home to his fortress of isitude just in time for Romeo to put him back together. Every time. The and only the half twist this time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like early on, all the villains had the, uh, the, the power dampening tech. Yes. All these villains can't be frozen. The only half twist this time is that Bobby gets a team up. It's not much of a twist. So we start off with Bobby and Romeo hanging out at the Fortress Vicitude. We see Bobby go out collecting seaweed and uni, you know, sea urchin, for a meal. And I think this is my favorite part of the issue, him just collecting food for a salad. Kind of makes nice use of the location. Kind of a cool thing. The final product, though, looks completely bland and boring, just like some green stuff in a bowl. And I'm going to be that that comic guy now and say that if you read manga, food always looks amazing in manga yes. every time. Even even yeah. like not only just food based manga like Superman versus Meshi, but like Chainsaw Man, Dan to Dan, food looks great. This this looks like nothing. Rant now mini rant over. So yeah. uh, here we go. Uh, Romeo's inhuman powers pick up a quote terror spike coming from Los Angeles. Now, I do not understand how his powers work because there's i don't know six billion people on earth some percentage of them are going to be terrified at any given moment but he yes. always picks up the one place that orcus is doing something <laughs> how, how does that work it works because that's the way the story has to happen that's yeah it. again thinking too hard about a book that doesn't want you to think too hard so yeah this is the orcus attack meant to draw bobby in this issue it's mr clean in los angeles attacking the why men why i think we're all asking uh, these are the Y-Men, and they're defended by that new bandana-wearing Captain America knockoff, Aaron Fisher. Where did that come from? Because it seemed like he was well-known, but I have never seen him. Oh, he was uh, – there was some sort of a miniseries like a year ago where they, they brought up a bunch of different Captain Americas or people inspired to be like Captain America. Aaron Fisher was the Captain America of the rails, I think. He was like – is the word hobo still in – Carmen used, he was riding the train and like protecting people who just, you know, jumped on the train. Uh, and some things have happened with his character recently. He used to be just some guy with the metal shield, but in an arc of the Love Unlimited Infinity comic, he got some superpowers. Uh, he, he got this new version of Super Soldier Serum, this one made by Alchemax. Gives him the power to absorb and redirect kinetic energy, kind of like Black Panther's suit. Because that's, we, we, we do see him in do super powery things here and if you yeah. didn't know you could go read that if you really really want i mean it was clear enough he basically can create a force shield and mm -hmm. deflect stuff so now we got the y men are you you a big fan of uh, the y men going back to their first appearance in 2008 they were created by mark guggenheim uh they appeared in young x-men number eight and their gimmick was that they were a criminal gang these old y men they were not yeah. mutants but they got mutant like powers via tattoos. Yeah. The mutant was the guy who tattooed them, and that was Leon Nunez, in whose tattoo waiting room you're now sitting. So any tattoos Leon Nunez gives, depending on like what he has in mind and the shape of the tattoo, that gives you superpowers. So these Y-Men are Lame all new characters, but they, this, we, they got their powers by this old method. So uh, let's go through these, these new Y-Men, because I'm sure these are going to be the hot new characters of 2024, so jump on board now. We've got Debrider. He makes soap bubbles. Now, you might expect a joke or two connecting soap bubbles and Mr. Clean, the villain. Uh, Steve Orlando overlooks that possibility. We have Miss Maillard. Now, Maillard reactions are what makes, like, when you cook something, it turns brown. That's mm -hmm. Maillard reactions. And she's a chef who can make her forearms real hot. Yeah. 
we've got LoJack who can locate stuff. And I'm just surprised they can use that 1990s era brand name in a comic. <laughs> you remember LoJack, right? The yes. thing you put in a car and the cops can yeah. find it if it gets stolen. Yep. Now we've got, they gave up their trademarks. I don't know. Maybe they're just expecting no one's going to read this. Yeah. Uh, next, we have Jump Scare. She's a lady who can make her head real big like a human Funko Pop. I don't know how that's supposed to help, but that's what she's got. And we've got Light Show, who is a model who can make his body glow different colors. All right, so we got a fight. It looks okay on the page. You know, the credit to uh, artist Vincenzo Caruto makes it look good, but it's just kind of, it's just your basic fight, right? Nothing super exciting happens. Uh, I don't know why Mr. Clean is any match for Iceman, the Omega Mutant. <laughs> We're told his biochemically treated skin can't be frozen. The range of what Omegas can do is quite dramatic, right? Think about Storm and X-Men Red and how badass she is. <laughs> Always I, coming up with like okay. amazing things. If we got like one panel about, oh, right, Bobby was recently more or less dead and now he's he's very weakened. He can still be Iceman, but he has a limited amount. Yes. Tell me something like that and I'll go with it, but. I mean, yeah. couldn't Bobby just trap him inside a giant ball of ice? I mean, even if his skin itself can't be frozen? Turn all the water vapor in his body into ice. Like, great, you can't freeze his skin, right? Like, there's so many things he could do to just, like, wreck this guy. Or freeze the ground so he just slips, right? Falls on his ass. Freeze all of his weaponry so it just stops working. I mean, there are lots of things he could be doing here. He could. I mean, he's supposed to be super powerful. Create an ice ball in the sky and drop it on his head and break his neck. Didn't he do that last issue? <sighs> Why can't he do it again? I mean, yeah. So yeah, Bobby does win the fight. Clean does have one weapon that seems like it should be scary, right? It's this whip made of molecular napalm, which is the, the thing that seemed to kill Bobby back at the gala. This time, Bobby just chops off the affected leg, throws back a new one. Pretty anticlimactic. And, and Bobby wins the fight, but Clean does one of those, you can catch me or you can save your little friends type villain moves. Yeah. And Bobby saves his friends, of course. I don't know why Bobby couldn't have done both. Clean just disappears off the off panel. Different bodies, they're doing different things, but... So many possibilities, but yeah. uh, Orlando doesn't want to use up Mr. Clean yet. He has to keep him in the next issue. Uh, so well, he is obviously a very formidable villain that cannot be stopped. We, we get a couple of epilogues. Bobby does dissolve again in Los Angeles. Apparently, he kept himself together for a bit over 20 minutes this time, a new record. He makes an, that's the longest I've lasted joke that I, I really could have done without. Uh, Orcus, in a data page, thinks he'll be back to a, quote, full-time existence any day now. Mm -hmm. I don't know why they say that. I mean, if I, I did take the data page, and I, I graphed it because that's the kind of nerd I am. And if you want to see that graph, you, you can see it on our Slack, join up a Patreon. The, the times that he's able to keep together are increasing non-linearly, right? It's kind of going upwards. Maybe you could fit a quadratic. Maybe you could fit an exponential. Uh, extra credit, folks. See what kind of curve you can fit to it. Let me know on Twitter. But he's still at a maximum of just over 20 minutes, right? So Orcus has some wiggle room here before Bobby is back permanent. Yes. And, and also, we see that Romeo off, you know, away remotely is working real hard to keep Bobby together. Bobby seems to think he's doing this all on his own. I don't know if that's going to be a plot point going forward, but it could be it, it could be something Orlando has has waiting for us. I also like the data page that's like Orcus talking about the threats and they're like, Iceman is clearly one of the major threats that we need to deal with. I, I mean, I get he's a mutant, but really? Is he really that big of a major threat? I mean, you've got you know, renegade mutants going around. 
You've got the Uncanny Avengers. You've got the fucking Children of the Vault, like, taking over. But, yeah, Lots of stuff going on. Yeah. Let's prioritize a guy that's around for 20 minutes at a time. You know, I don't know if seeing this. You got the nuclear bomb under the under the school, right? Like, I feel like there's there's either Bobby issues. is a huge Omega level threat, or he has trouble fighting Mister Clean. You can't have <laughs> both. Just pick one. But we do see Mister Clean arrive back yeah. at the Orcas facility on Randall's Island. You know, presumably that Guy Rich reeducation facility. We've seen mm-hmm. other books, so a little mm-hmm. bit of continuity there. He and Pequod argue a bit over exactly which one of them is the bigger failure. <laughs> Upshot of which is that Clean wants wants to now track Iceman back to his den and wants Orcus and Pequod to provide a distraction. Now, if if you folks out there remember our review of Astonishing Iceman number two, I know you're all taking copious notes at home, you might remember I predicted Orcus would take the fight to the Fortress of Isitude this time, raising the stakes by putting Romeo at risk. Romeo yeah. not only being Bobby's love interest, but also providing the means by which he can remain in physical form. Mm-hmm. And that did not happen in this issue, but it's hinted at again. So maybe next issue, or maybe they're saving that for issue number five. It's going to happen sometime, but yeah. Steve Orlando was really stretching it out. And then on the final, final page, we see a techno-organic-looking version of Feral fighting with Spider-Man. That's the original Peter Parker Spider-Man, not Miles, not Nightcrawler, Peter Parker, as far yeah. as I can tell. Yeah. This is actually a nice bit of continuity because we saw Feral in Orcus custody in Uncanny Spider-Man number one. So Orcus did something to her and she's serving, I guess, as that distraction that Clean wanted Orcus to provide. So yeah. some actual continuity between Iceman and Uncanny Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Not bad. That's the nicest thing I can say about this issue. Uh, yeah, this could have been a fine, lighthearted, Bronze Age style solo adventure if we hadn't just read it two previous times. And for the first five, three issues of a five-issue mini to be the same story, that's lame. We don't want that. Yeah. Uh, the arc here by Vincenzo Caruto is much better than the story deserves, makes the pretty basic fight scene more exciting than it deserves. Uh, colorist Hava Tartaglia gets to use a wider color palette here than all those blues and grays for Iceman versus Helium last, last issue. That helps. It looks good. I'm just not interested or invest in the story or it's quite lame supporting characters, and I'm going to forget about it two minutes after I'm talking about it. So yeah. Even with a little bonus for that continuity with Uncanny Spider-Man, highest I can go is a 5.5 out of 10. Not a good one. I'm going to be positive, Peter, and just say it's a 6. The art's really good. I, I'll give it that. But um, Art looks nice. Colors look pretty. I guess I got a few chuckles. I thought the, uh, the terrible dinner that poor Romeo's eating <laughs> was at least uh, some good jokes there, but... Yeah, it's it's a very forgettable story. So Romeo lives permanently twenty four seven in a a house made of ice. Yeah, Sh- I, shouldn't he be freezing to death by now? <laughs> or again, again, mention something. There's Eating some sort of food. special yeah. clothes, some sort of fire that does. Uh, give me something to explain how Romeo can be there in ice world and not not freeze. We, we've already spent more time talking about Ice Man than than it really deserves. So moving on to. Invincible Iron Man number 11, written by Jerry Duggan, art by guest artist Andrea DeVito, colors by Brian Valenza, letters by Joe Caramagna. Now, kind of like Iceman, this is a very straightforward story, but it's told in a much more intelligent, more interesting, more entertaining, more tying into other things going on kind of way. So I think it makes a good comparison. 
Yeah, I had a lot of fun with it. And I'm not sure why it's different than Iceman, so maybe we can figure that out. Yeah, it it's not that your big wow, think about things, giant idea kind of story like Children of the Vault. It's it's a pretty straightforward, you know, superhero adventure thing, but it it's a fun one. So Tony Stark is now married to Emma Frost, or at least to her alter ego, Hazel Kendall. They head off for their honeymoon. They honeymoon at a tropical Hawaiian beach resort, giving plenty of excuse for Andre DeVito to draw Emma in a skimpy swimsuit. Naturally, Tony has plans beyond hanging out on the beach drinking alcohol-free tiki drinks. He wants to use his new Mark Nil suit to sneak onto Krakoa and retrieve a batch of Mysterium that Emma had left behind in the White Palace. Emma tagging along via the magic of virtual reality sunglasses. Now, when he arrives, I, I start to get a little bit confused here because in Immortal, it seems like Orcas has had zero success getting any of their folks established on Krakoa or getting any of the mutant goodies off the island, right? Yeah. Yep. In Wolverine, it seems like Orcas has they stripped the island bare. They got <laughs> <Yes>. everything. <laughs> Absolutely everything. <laughs> now, here in Iron Man, there are Orcas goons and at least one Orcas scientist turned gorilla. Always love to see them. That's an extra point right there. Just casually jetting around the White Palace in jetpacks like they own the place. The PhD holding gorilla does make one remark about how, hey, 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 goons, you be careful because, quote, we've lost too many operatives here. So that is something, little nod to Xavier on the island. But I don't know how they got past Xavier in the first place, you know, virtually Omega level psychic guy. Yes. But yeah, probably shouldn't think too hard about it. Maybe he went down into the room where he found the uh, sinister diamond on the mirror and the like, don't kill yourself sign and then. Could be, kinda, this could be in the future kinda, after what we've seen so far in Immortal. We, yeah. we can make it work. Yeah, so like maybe he's like not as actively protective. And then you would think that the Wolverine issue maybe takes place after this issue. Because it seems like at this point they're still sort of inventorying what's on the island and booting things. Yeah. It's certainly possible that when all is said and done months down the line, we can go back and say, okay, it makes sense if you put it in this order. Because wasn't there any other set of. Wasn't there an Emma corset in the Wolverine issue that it was like one of the things they were going to auction off? It was. It was one of the one of the things yeah. they had. But we see all her clothes here in this issue, so I don't know. We we see lots of her lingerie just flying around here, which is again yes. the artist had had fun drawing the cheesecake type stuff. Yeah. So Tony winds up having to fight the gorilla in this battle that sends Emma's abandoned lingerie just flying everywhere. Uh, Tony wins. Ends up. I was surprised by this. He kills the gorilla by dropping a chunk of the house on it. Like, there's a moment where I think he tries to save the gorilla from dying, but the gorilla doesn't go along with it. Anyway, seeing a dead gorilla on, on panel, I did not expect. Yes. <laughs> I did laugh at that, the memoir quote where he's like, nobody wakes up intending to kill a great ape. It's just <laughs> something that happens. I was like, okay, that's funny. <laughs> it was funny, but they, they made it really clear. <laughs> gorilla's not getting up in the morning. He's yeah. not just knocked out. This is, well, this is a dead gorilla. Yeah. I mean, we needed that because. The gorilla's like, you're, you know, you're Tony Stark. I'm going to go tell Fei Long that you're not retired, right. as you've claimed. Yeah, There's so another suit. Him. Yeah. Yep, I yeah. guess so. To keep the secret. Makes sense. I, I get it. So Tony ends up taking possession of both Emma's Mysterium and a scrapbook that had these Stepford cuckoos made for their mom. Uh, Emma doesn't notice he takes the scrapbook because the VR sunglasses give her a headache. She momentarily yeah. takes them off. I didn't really put that together my first read, but it's a nice touch that makes that little bit make sense. Yeah, because she basically says, don't take it. You know, I don't need something that's going to be around here that could um, 
alert people that right. Emma Frost is. And also, it's, she seems to feel like that's part of the past. That's part of Krakoa. That's dead and gone. I don't even want to think yeah. about it anymore. So Tony takes the Mysterium back to his secret workshop at the Hellfire Club. Uh, the fabricating machine he stole from Stain International is also in his workshop. But didn't he have Deadpool take that to the Morlock Tunnels? Yeah. I, I guess maybe they then sent it on to the Hellfire Club, which seems more complicated than necessary, but mm. anyway, it's there. Tony it's uses, it needs to be. Tony uses machine to form the Mysterium into the shape of, quote, an ordinary cane. Now, another, I'm thinking too hard again, given how strong Mysterium is, it's resistant to heat, radiation, magic, everything else. Yeah, this is the part that How do you make most. it into anything? Yes, exactly. Like, how do you cut a diamond? Oh, another diamond. Yeah. He doesn't have a machine made of Mysterium. Yeah. This was Don't the one bit that I thought was really frustrating that you really have to suspend your belief on this. Because I was like, then the whole rest of the issue is showing about how indestructible it is and right. resistant to everything. And I'm like, okay, then how did you make it into anything? <laughs> it has to be attacked by a stain fabricating machine. That's its only weakness. <laughs> it's its kryptonite. Yeah, okay. So so Tony proves how strong it is by having Captain Marvel fail to bend it. Yeah. Proves how magic resistant it is by having Doctor Strange fail to magic it. Also leaves that scrapbook with Doctor Strange for safekeeping, so that'll pop up somewhere yeah. down the line when we need an emotional moment for Emma. And one more pretty funny scene, Tony proves the Mysterium Kane is even impervious to Spidey Sense. Yeah. How does he prove as impervious to Spidey Sense? Ah, oh, that's a jerk move. <laughs> he calls Spidey <laughs> what a funny up. One. He's like, I need some help with some science. And he's like, Ooh, finally, somebody recognizing that I have science chops. <laughs> given their whole like relationship, right? Through, um, oh gosh, what was that big famous story? Um well, most people are going to think about the MCU, but this is this is different kind of relationship. Yeah, regardless, them. you know they have a relationship, like a mutual respect, but like also animosity relationship. And he's like, "Okay, we're going to do a science experiment. Close your eyes," and then he just whacks him in the leg with the cane, right on the shin. Uh, and, yeah. and he didn't get any warning for Spidey sense. I think it's kind of interesting that Mysterium is Spidey Civil sense. Civil War. Proof. That's what I was thinking of. Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we can add a little bit to the legacy of Mysterium. Uh, and and yeah, that's where the issue ends. Very simple, very quick, straightforward, but effective. This is my theory. This is my headcanon theory. All these people are punking him. This is like the flimsiest ass <laughs> metal effort. Captain Marvel. Oh, I can't bend it. <laughs> Two issues and it. Tony, you idiot, <laughs> moron. It's like aluminum. Now, if if so, then Spidey's a really good actor because that looked like a yes, movie. yes. So what do you think Tony is going to do with his cane? Did all the Mysterium end up in the cane? No. Or does he have more of it? No, I think I think he's got well, he's got to have more. I, it's not clear to me. We never see inside the chest. It's added like Emma was saying that she secreted away just a tiny little bit of it too, right? Didn't sound mm -hmm. like she had like a huge stash. I think she was saying there was a subset of it from some other use. That's the question I have. Is, is this cane itself going to be the weapon to use? Or is this just the test case and he's got more Mysterium to make into a Mysterium Iron Man suit or whatever? Yeah. Looking forward to find out. So yeah, artist Andrea DeVito, or probably Andrea DeVito, has a lot of fun here drawing Emma in a swimsuit, her skimpy lingerie. He has to draw Tony's fake sex dungeon that hides his real secret workshop. Yeah. He looks very slick, very polished, just what yeah. this book needs. Not a, Again, kind of like Astonishing Iceman, this is not a story I'm going to be thinking about all week. That'll be Children of the Vault. Well, yeah, it was well-made, it was light, it was different, it was not the same thing we've seen for eight issues. I'm happy with uh, Iron Man being like this. It's a lot better than the more last couple volumes of Iron Man that I 
tried to dip into and never caught on with. So yeah, mm-hmm. fine with this. Ah, uh, seven and a half out of ten. Yeah, I liked it a little bit more than that. I, I laughed a lot, so I about an eight on this. I agree with you. It's it's just kind of cheesecake and fluff, but the art's nice. The jokes resonate with me and. Agreed. And it does you know. do something. It does get the Mysterium in the hands of Tony Stark. And that's yeah, and there cool. are some sort of touching moments again, right? We we see Tony gets the cuckoo's book and you think he sashes it with, is it Doctor Strange? With Doctor Strange, yes. Which is a, a really nice gesture, right? Like, even though Emma says, like, no, nah, I don't want that thing. Obviously, it's something sentimental to her. Yeah, little emotional moments showing his humanity, showing that, yeah, he's not really married to her, but he's still doing a nice thing for her to, to be brought yeah. out at the right time and place. I like it. Yeah, good, good issue. So, uh, yeah, those are the books we had to talk about this week. Next week, uh, I don't know how this happened, but we have a lot of books on the list <laughs> next week. We have Uncanny Avengers, number three of five, Jean Grey, number three of four, Dark X-Men, number three of five, Alpha Flight, number three of five. Ms. Marvel, The New Mutants, number three of four, Realm of X, number three of four, and we do have Uncanny Spider-Man, number two of five, which I'll be talking about, if all goes well, with Jim on the regular Marvel podcast again, because we're kind of, he wants to hang on to that that title over there. But that yeah, still that's leaves great. one, two, three, four, five, six books for next week. None of them are really big books, so we're going to read them. Uh, Rube and I will talk offline and decide we're going to talk about them all really quick. We're going to kick a couple to the next week, which is kind of light, but we'll definitely talk about at least three or four of those books next week. So if there's some of them you think, listeners, you've read and say, hey, this is a bigger book than you guys think, you should definitely give it time. Let us know on Slack, on Twitter, by email, go to the Weird Science Marvel website. You guys know how to find us. Yeah, and I want to do a little cross-promotion quickly. So Jim and Gray are covering Morrison's uh, new X-Men run on their Talking Morrison podcast. So you guys should go check that out too. That sounds like a good idea. No shortage of podcasts to listen to on the Weird Science Network. Is that a is that a Patreon exclusive or is that for everybody? Yes, I believe that's exclusive. Oh, so folks, we got a lot of good stuff behind the, uh, the Patreon uh, velvet rope here. So yeah, why not check that out? It's good stuff. So Ruben, what should folks do while they wait for those 93 new X-related issues to come out <laughs> next week? They should just wait because that's a lot of issues to read. But they can be like me. I'm probably going to still read some more X-Men comics. 